0: Welcome to the 63rd episode of the k Poetry Slam cast. My name is Tracy Smith. This week's podcast was recorded in April of 2002. It is the second half of the second round of the semifinals to determine who went to the National Slam in the summer of 2002. The guest host for this round of the semifinals and feature poet was Carrie Worla, Who's a member of the K-Zoo Slam team in 2000 and 2001? Let's get into it. This is slam poem.
1: Later, like the poems are like, you dirty fucking whore. But this is one of the good ones from the beginning.
2: My ears reach
1: the suburban noise of night. There's a question asked in one naked moment. I am.
3: Of the and the that we sing.
1: All right let's keep that applause going for our next poet up Todd Bannon.
0: <laughs> Mark Jones had my brother pinned to the ground. I stood by and watched while I pummeled him in the face, me whispering, enough, that's enough. Later retelling the story to stunned friends, I had struggled to break free, arms held behind my back, but I was only held by a threat. You want to be next, huh? I stood by and watched while I kicked my brother in the stomach. My brother started lifting weights because I stood by while he smashed his nose, cut his lip, cracked his ribs, bruised his kidneys. Television reporters interviewing a woman after saving four children, strangers in a burning house she carried down one by one through blazing door frames, or man after saving drowning dog from flood raged rivers, always hear the same words from these heroes. I didn't think. I just did what I had to do. And I wonder if I would do the same, or would I be one of the nameless onlookers measuring flame versus thickness of skin or river's velocity versus strength of arms and legs? And by then, the hero has already acted, emerging blackened and coughing from smoke, carrying the last child in her arms or dripping and exhausted, lifting a golden retriever to dry ground. And I in a room full of angry laughing heads lips bare to show gnashing teeth spitting acid slander me struggling to speak behind tightly pressed lips and reminded of peter denying christ once he is not my brother twice that is not my brother thrice that is not my brother and I, at a family reunion in Northern Michigan, listening to my uncle proudly sharing his newest repertoire of Korean shopkeeper jokes, me not laughing but silent, imagine a man on the side of a lonely Jasper Road watching the corpse of James Byrd Jr. dragging in the gravel, bouncing in the air, clothes and skinned and limbs shredded to pieces behind a pickup truck, the man whispering to himself, that ain't my brother, that ain't my brother. And I, at a smoky college bar, drinking a beer in private, listening to the pack of Alpha Omegas ramble off their drunken litany of ass pirate, fudge packer, bone licker. Imagine a reluctant man in a darkly lit Laramie bar, wanting to warn Matthew Shepard that the pretenders he was leaving with had nothing but blood on their brains, saying nothing as Matthew walks out the door to a wooden fence and a pistol whipping. And back in the bar? The silent man convinces the bottom of his shot glass, that was not my brother. That was not my brother. I always wanted to be the hero, always wanted to do the right thing, but always thinking too much, shutting my mouth instead. Scars on my tongue read like the source of all the words I never said, but no more. That is enough. The next time I see a father cuff his child, I will call him out. The next time I hear the bangs and crashes, the ensuing weeping from the upstairs apartment, I will pound on that door. The next time I see a cross burning, I will tear it down. The next time I am called to act, I will not think, I will not shrink, I will do what must be done.
1: Let's keep that applause going while the judges are doing that number voodoo that they do. All right, we got one score up. You guys are rocking. You're getting those scores up fast. We've got two. We've got three. We need two more. There's number four, and there is number five. All right, for Todd Bannon, we have got an eight. We have got an, yeah, tell them what you think. That's part of your job. We got an 8.6. We got another 8.6. We got a nine. We got a 9.4. Always 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 applaud the judges. Even though we might not and always the poets. Tracy is going to give us a number.
2: We have our
1: first time. Oh! 25.2 Woo! See, now this is extra number crunching. The three-minute thing, we really mean it when it's an official slam like this. The poets get a b- grace period. I'm rambling so Tracy can add. The poets get a grace period up to 3.99999 seconds. At 3.10, the points start coming off in 10-second integrals. intervals. I didn't stall nearly long enough because Tracy's still number crunching up there. We got it? What? 26-2. Okay, we got a 26.2. All right, let's get that applause going for our next poet up, Miss Dawn Saylor.
2: My grandmother, used to jitterbug in the 40s, started brawls with women over my grandfather, worked in a pickle factory, and rolled her own uh, cigarettes. She tells me about trips to find the perfect steak in the back of a 1942 Harley, the Grand Canyon, Yellowstone, Graceland, across the U.S., and back again. And one day up in the UP, my grandfather turned around, decided not to drive any farther, put the car in reverse, and headed home. No explanation, end of vacation, said goodbye to road trips and gave in to the propaganda of the 50s nuclear family with a brand new car and a yard, a tree and a dog. But the dog was a black cat named Salem, and the shiny Grand Brie my grandfather brought home when I was eight outlived him. The tree I spent my childhood climbing died. They ripped it out of the earth. I showed up one day and it was gone, like their Lives that disappeared somewhere between Charlevoix and the Canadian border that day with my uncles and my mother folded into the neat little box that held the precious moments forever frozen in black and white photo albums labeled like specimens. Yellowstone, 1949, my grandmother, a striking but primly dressed woman clutching her handbag, protecting it from the bears, I suppose. But I remember her, a tiny stick of a woman, smoking Salem 100s and drinking tab. My grandfather yelling from the overstuffed brown corduroy easy chair, is that kid here again? I learned an appreciation for Kirk Gibson and had my first taste of beer behind my mother's back. I was five and thought it was terrible, but it was our secret. And since he died, I feel so disconnected when I look around on Thanksgiving and my family is 600 miles away and I can't even seem to find leftovers. So it's PBJ and popcorn instead of my family, Iris to the end, men gathered drunkenly around the bar, women sitting, chatting, drinking coffee in the dining room. And I miss the smell of Lucky Strikes, Budweiser, and Old Spice because there was a bond with the only man who took the time. And I realize that it doesn't matter that I don't know what happened after that day in the North Woods. He rode a Harley, taught me to wink, and when he looked at me, He must have seen a little bit of a 20-something couple dancing drunk in a hometown bar, living life, knowing that I'd give in one day, too. And I wonder if it made him sad, silently cheering for the odd grandchild out not to find a boy, settle down, buy a house, and stock in GM, praying that I won't turn around, that I always wake up in Graceland.
1: a poet that I actually get to m- move the mic up from instead of down. All right, the audience is clapping, and the judges are writing, and the judges are going to get some numbers up in the air for me right about now. We've got one, we've got two, we've got three, and four, and the fifth little light bulb goes on. All right, we have got an 8.4, we have got an 8.9, a 9.0, a 9.3, and a 9.5 for Don Sailor. which gives us a grand total of? 27.2. A 27.2 for Dawn. All right, let's keep that applause going. Come on, we're almost done. Keep clapping, keep that energy up. Next poet up to the mic is Uncle Jack.
4: Sunlight, I bled the only true blood sacrifice, heard my life drop upon fruiting wood, see the valleys carved, take the shapes of original wisdom.
0: My hide
4: did not ask to be the pale vessel of wealth's corruption once I spat upon the gold of Rome. I did not ask to build your empires, my hands slowly crippled that yours might stay clean, while your moneyed salvations called me evil for being unexploited and made me good. Across the sword hilt that converted across the Atlantic and chains to working death in the plantation colonies, tribal lands shrank and nations grew. Does any of this sound familiar? Indentures end carried no passage home. Escapees driven to the hills, bobs, swamps, dark green forests spiked in dappled sunlight, and firelight like the glow of Atlanta fired by a northern savage to end what began eleven score years before as Cromwell fired a savage's Celtic home. Christian rectitude unheard above the whispered runes of the original red necks. Behu, Esa, Reno Ewo, Kainage, 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 and Atlanta as Rome burned while slaves, both black and white, stood in spite and dappled firelight. I did not ask to be your working-class demon, you wealthy of all races, so I will speak loudly about the slaves you make and keep every day around the world. I will yearn for a mate who would terrify you, so unlike your daughter who spoke to me of the funny homeless. I will not be your brother until you stop demanding bigotry as fidelity until you hear the whispers. Priests, ayatollahs, preachers, Romans, all, I did not ask to be your Satan any more than the tribes of America, Africa, Asia, Europe. But I have read your holy books, though you have not read mine. And unlike mine, your books of love and salvation command you to kill me. No matter, while I live, I will tell your children of a breathing wheel, and a sun goddess, and a man in the moon, and if you make yourself holier, bathed in my blood, I will become your children. Your son will become your demon, though he did not ask to be, and your daughter will terrify you, crouched in the spiked and dappled firelight of Rome, burning. I will ask, what this one thing of you? For... If I am your demon, to deserve me, how did you sin? All
1: right, what do we think of canage? I've just always wanted to do that. Kainage, that's really fun. All right, judges, let's see some scores. We've got one, we've got two. We've got some judges thinking. We've got three, we've got four, and we've got five scores. We've got people in the way. We've got an 8.7, we have an 8.8, we have a 9.0, a 9.1, and a 9.5 for the Canage. Yeah. And we've got a frantically adding scorekeeper back there who's going to give us a score of. A 26.9 for Uncle Drack. All right, keep that applause going. For the last poet up for the night, we have Mr. Chris Trudell.
3: (laughs) Have you ever held something so wonderful you just couldn't let it go? like those moments from childhood you've got locked in your memory or that rock that you keep from the first time you went mountain climbing. You see, these are the things we hold close, but before you, I didn't understand them. Or like those old, overplayed 80's tunes that never seemed to make sense. Now they seem to sing of you and like them I long to hear your words in my ear played over and over again because you make the mathematics easy. You see, before you I was a quarter of me, and without you I was half me, but with you I am complete, and I am packaged, wrapped, and sent straight to ecstasy every time you are close to me by the unmistakable rhythms of our synchronized heartbeat. And there are moments when I am with you when the clocks forget to tick. The laws of nature are suspended in our embrace. Your face holds the answers to eternity. Your hands press clear to the center of me, and oceans of motion bust the floodgates of my mind, and I am drowned in you, because you are another wonder of the world. One I keep secret, otherwise everyone would want to know you. And that means they would keep me from you, and I want those moments to tell you my secrets, to find that force that is formed between reality and dreams, that space between our eyes charged with tender particles, and in the face of finding how wonderful we are, we form the sweet nature of the future, and the reasons that we sing. There are moments at 4 a.m. when I just want to hear your voice, but I can't, so I put on that shirt from the first time we dance, and I swirl and sway and paint the room with my heat. And I replace Tori Amos with that folk song we share and all of a sudden, you are there and we are gone dancing past the satellites. I don't want to be perfect, I just want to be yours for a moment or an hour, but I would rather have forever because you and I are like water and we are pouring from a sky that endlessly celebrates rain. And I want you to know if I ever hurt you, I won't mean to and if I do, I will die or at least I will want to because I am yours. Do with me what you will. If you want patience, I will wait for you. And if you want music, I will play for you. And if you want me to go with you, I will go. And if you don't want me to, I will stay. And if you want a cold explosion, I will blow the night hollow. And if you want emotion, I will move a mountain. And if you want surrender, I will yield myself to your every passion because you and I are everything multiplied by life exponentially.
1: Judges, crunch some numbers about those numbers of love exponentially. Audience, keep clapping, keep hooting and hollering. We are at the end of the second round of semifinals. All right, we got one score, we got two score. We got three scores, four scores, and five scores. All right, the numbers are a (gasps) 7.7. Yeah, we got an 8.1, an 8.2, an 8.4, and a (laughs) 9.3! Applaud that poet! And the scorekeeper says... A 24.7 for Chris, let's keep clapping for Chris, though. All right, you might not want to clap for him, but by God, they got their scores up, and by God, they did a good consistent job throughout the night. Let's hear it for our five judges. Let's hear it for Dave, Aaron, Joe, Lee, Rebecca, and Max. Yeah, shine your flashlights around, that's your your one moment of glory. Okay, that's it. <laughs> no, seriously, thanks a lot, guys. You did a great job. Tracy, do we have rankings or anything? Or are we just gonna... Yeah, because, you know, all that we're doing, we're, what we're doing here, folks, is these scores that everybody got tonight, we're adding those to the scores that they got last week. We're adding them to the scores they get next week. These are some grueling semifinals here. Yeah. So there you have it. There's the numbers for the night. Thanks to Tracy for doing some mad scorekeeping. Thanks to all of you for your clapping, for your noise for staying through the heat. We are going to take a break, we're going to go smoke, we're going to go pee, we're going to get some air, and afterwards we're going to do a little more poetry. I'm going to be up here doing a feature and beer! Lots and lots of beer and lots of tips for the bartender back there. All right, thank you. All right, we've had a good long break. We've been able to pee, we've been able to go have cigarettes, we've been able to get cool. Are we ready for some more poetry? Okay, we've got like three people in here. For hey, you guys on the deck! Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> poetry time! <laughs> You'd never know I was a librarian. I can be really damn loud. All right, um, commercial break before we get started here. There is a slew of really cool poetry merchandise over on the table over here. we got a whack of CDs. We've got a bunch of stuff from... Uh, years past of uh, the teams from Kalamazoo, uh, we have a CD of the renowned messy hair tour of our own Dawn Sailor, and that's right, that's her, right back there, she's got a fucking CD here, um, Dawn Sailor and uh, Lucy Anderton of Chicago, and these two women rock, so you want to buy that CD? <laughs> well, you know, I, gotta, I got some books over there too, so you know, there we go. So, yeah, you can buy my books, too, and and I wouldn't wouldn't be disappointed. And, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and and get started for, like, the six people in here who want to hear some poetry. (laughs) All right, somebody says that they want to hear some poetry. By God, I'm going to give them some poetry. (laughs) This is weird. I've never had to, like, introduce myself before. It's kind of funny. It's like, hi, I'm Carrie. I'm here to do some poetry for you guys. Okay. my mother says she figures that death owes her one it's nine o'clock on a winter sunday morning and like it has every week for about 12 years now that heralds the jangle of the phone next to my sleeping ear and an hour and a half or so of long distance connecting shrinking down the miles between mother and daughter her voice is early a.m gravel from another late night hovering at a local hospital I was out till one doing my grim Reaper thing again, she tells me. But from her satisfied smile lurking behind her hooded words, I know it was what she would call a good death. Because a good death is her calling discovered late in her own life, and what she does for a living is help others with their dying. She holds hands and says prayers when options and emotions have exhausted themselves offers up hope to clustered families broken with indecision and grief, and argues down edgy doctors who won't let their patients die with dignity and wishes intact. She makes friends with the dying and dim last hours comfortable and sense out of the senseless and death just a little less ominous. She answers pesky pager call after pesky pager call after pesky pager call that yank her away from her family's life to attend an almost stranger's death, and sits Eating bean soup and staring at infomercials when she can finally slip back home in the post-midnight hush. Because her mind is still taut with what most of us fear but she finds miraculous. And after escorting two people in one night to the big sleep, the little one doesn't come so easily for her. But by morning she is settled again, punching my numbers brightly and early to share with me her ghostly triumph of the previous night and I listen because her cozy companionship with death always awes me a bit. And I try to siphon comfort for myself from her easy way with with the way things are and because I know that she needs to hear herself say the words in the cold reality of Sunday sunlight. On this morning, the words are that she figures that death owes her one, a gentle one, when it's her time, to be exact. And after hearing her spin her story of the quiet magic she worked, weaving the frayed ends of another life and the dismay of another family into something comforting and calm, I figured that she is right, and that death will make sure that hers is a good one. Okay, you do a death poem, you you just gotta follow it up with some fluff, you know. You gotta you gotta. Yeah, I started with death. What the fuck was I thinking? (laughs) At 21, I would have snatched them from the shelf without a heartbeat's pause. Those supple boots with the heels that shout danger and leather the exact color of robin eggs in morning sunlight. Would have strutted them to the dance floor on a bass-thumping Tuesday night that slowly eroded into Wednesday morning. Never would have let necessity wriggle its nasty little way into the equation. At 31, I debate whether to even slip swollen feet into them, eye them warily in the slope of the shoe store mirror, perform rapid-fire mental calculations, consider the gas bill and the extra pounds, laugh it off to my companion that these are boots for the tall, slim, and young, all the while making deals with myself about visa payments and trips to the gym and aching for just a little more danger. It just doesn't get any fluffier about than poems about turquoise boots. Um, I write a lo- lot of poems about relationships because, you know, every self-analyzing poet does. And it, yeah, <laughs> yay relationship poems. Puppies sitting on the grass and exponentially and all those great relationship poems. Well, I discovered that there's this, if I had to, like, chart my relationship poems on a big graph. There's three that really stand out for me as the three that kinda mark my progress of my relationships over the past, past few years. Bye Todd, I love you. And it turns out that they all have to do with the telephone for some unknown reason. So um, I'm gonna try weaving all three of them together into this big-ass long telephone suite and we'll see if it works. Phones don't ring at 3 a.m. They shriek. They wail that something is very wrong. Especially when the monotone voice on the other end of the line asks if I would like to accept charges. Heart flails about like a startled rabbit. Clammy fingers clutch receiver as if to wrest some sort of answer out of it. Who's hurt? Who's died? Who? And then the name. Your name, you are not hurt, you are not dead. You just finally found yourself face to face with a phone, whiskey in one hand, crumpled card of scribbled numbers in the other and a sickly marriage weighing heavy on your back. You finally cared enough to call or maybe you were just reaching out like I said you could back when we started this whole sort of thing though I don't necessarily want to listen. And I heard your name and said, nothing, and quietly hung up, slipping back into bed and whispering wrong number to the one who was already there. I'm waiting for phones that aren't ringing, and I haven't felt this adolescent quiver in years. Been filling in the gaps and mortaring up crumbling walls instead, plastering liquid-bright circus posters over firmaments no longer firm, trying to pretend to convince myself that three rings of faded fun could fill up the void of waiting for someone to send Quicksilver shivering down my spine with one cautious glance of Dove Gray. And last weekend, I found a part of myself that I barely recognized in a deliciously unlikely place floating happily on the fumes of tawny port wine in the front seat of a pickup, wrapped up laughing in a ridiculous embrace, with a 120-pound dog smelling slightly of skunk and my giddy fingers fumbling through the long strands of silver, are the first man to make me feel something on the first date since the first time I fell for that fairy tale called love. And I still don't believe in love at first sight or the moody meddlings of fate, but I am believing that I can feel again. That dancing the razor's edge of unsure can be infinitely more satisfying than wallowing in the worn rut of comfortable empty. That the quavering question, will he call, sends a vital trill through me that the mournful musing, will he ever love me, just never did. So I'm perched on a bar stool with a stomach full of flutter, wondering if he'll walk through the door with that quiet confidence that makes my pulse surge. Not caring if I feel like a high school sophomore, not even really caring if the phone stays silent just thrilling at the racing rush of being alive. The phone whirls me out of sleep, and as you unfurl your name and his and the desperate searching reason for your call, I wonder why you are reaching through wires across a continent to someone you only know as the other woman, a summertime smear on your happiness, half a pair of word thieves who jimmied sparkling confidence out of you, trusting me for truth, Instead of the man whose hair and heart you clutch with fear-twisted fingers, why you think my words now will grant you peace? But your shaky stammer, telling me that half of you wishes you'd landed my answering machine for the 27th time in four days, reminds me of another slippery Gemini, whose twins of self spun me into a frenzied mockery of the strength I believed braided itself through me, and I remember hollowly that I have been you, sister. Fishing for truths and pockets among lint and loose change. Fear nestled in stomach, the weather and tremulous expectation of finding something or nothing. You're not quite certain because even the most devastating something you can wrap shaking hands around, but nothing, god that nothing, always leaves you watching and wondering. But I followed the thread of time out of that labyrinthine darkness. True, I stumbled on snarls now and again, because my old fears had worn their sickly grooves deep into my insecurities. Until the afternoon, I sat, swilling beers in the spill of an airport bar with a sodden and grasping writer whose word tricks had charmed me, and I finally looked my past few years in the eye. Put him on a plane without a backward glance, turned my back on chance encounters with men who spin musical melancholy, mourning with fevered relief the fact that I was at long last empty of the emptiness that had filled me for so long and came home the man who tells me I sound like Magnolia's smell, but who more importantly never makes me watch or wonder. Never cripples me with insecurity until I find myself dialing some other woman because maybe she can give me the why that he can't. And in turn, I gave him the truth when I returned to his solidity as we sat in lamplit twilight in my car and bared our scars for each other the addictions that sent us balancing along the tightrobes of our past. Not treading them timidly, but racing along them, frantically clutching fistfuls of broken glass, daring to cut ourselves in the inevitable fall, and never dreaming that we would actually survive, let alone find ourselves safe and rid of the demons of our fears. These are the things I want to say to you. Pour them into the hum of the waiting phone line. I want to give you all of this so that you will know that I have been where you are, and I know it is the queasiest of darknesses. So you will feel the truth of my words as warm and as solid as the life I have found at the end of my tightrope. Assuring you that I am finished picking up the shiny temptings that nestle in another woman's velvet because I, I have true treasures now. So relax. Hang up the phone. You're safe. So <laughs> that last bit, when I, I had a friend read it, the first words out of his mouth were, did he really tell you you sound like Magnolia's smell? And I got to say, yes, he did. That's why I'm marrying him. <laughs> uh, this, this is my fiance, Eric's, and uh, we've been kind of toying around with putting some of my poems to some of his guitar music. And um, this is the first time we've done this in front of anybody besides the dog and the cats at home. So we'll see if it sounds all right. <laughs> Okay? Sound man? Was that a thumbs up or a wait a second? It looks like a thumbs up. It's good. lights trying to be stars stab at the ceiling of the theater blue as a van gogh night and a rose tinted spotlight flashes on fingerprinted guitar like sudden understanding as a man stands solo with 12 steel strings pouring into the darkness the music of turning wheels and my mind is turning and tomorrow morning the man at my side brought here in celebration is turning toward Nebraska where he planted the seed that is now his son to start the legal wheels turning to prove to the strangers with the strings that he is fit to be a daddy The only thing I've ever planted in Nebraska is the grandmother of the husband i used to have in a tattered scrap of cemetery reached by country roads turning past farmers clutching battered hats over genteel hearts where i leaned with dry wind whistling through my skull next to the leathered fresh widower who gave my ex the lakota eyes that would have been left to our child and who i have heard still asks after me bearing jello salads and the baby I rocked so close through the eulogy who belonged to some sort of cousin I'd just met and tucked fiercely at something deep inside this confused young wife we turned our wheels back toward home to a life that never matched what we said we wanted like misfit wedding presents you can't return and stopped along the dark Nebraska two lanes to stare at the stars he'd grown up gazing at and longed to share but the sheer weight of billions crushed me against the side of the car and I sobbed under the steering wheel that it was all too the man on stage is playing a song that was a gift for a marriage that cracked and blew away like old brittle paper but it is still a pretty love song with a harmony of hope and the man at my side who will be states away tomorrow but tonight has his arm snug tight around my shoulder is singing along quietly and i just have to smile and turn to him and say happy birthday If you like what we're doing here, we're making a CD. (laughs) And if you want to buy it, you can talk to me. Give me an email address or something, and I will gladly sell it to you when it's done. In the meantime, I'll sell you books. Shameless plug while we change guitars here. She swears she knows nothing of poetry, but when the talk turns to last lines, she asserts that they must make musical sense, that you have to know you've come home. For a moment, she is so sure of herself, and I dive into the topic with vigor, eager to reassure her that her reasoning is sound, before doubt at feeling out of her depths plucks at the tail of her thought like the unseen question mark that robs so many poets of their declarative power. She is my sister, older by several years, and I've pulled her from her world of a two-doctor family and preschool twins for a two-day road trip in her shiny new Oldsmobile to watch me perform my first published poem in a shabby jazz club in Ohio. She feels underdressed and out of place in this word-strewn realm where the night begins half past when she collapses into bed, but she was the first to her feet as I ease triumphant off the light-hot stage clutching me to her so tightly, I could feel the pride oozing into my skin. Now, despite her penchant for cabs, we're striding deserted city streets, lit only by flickering streetlights, and the animated glow of her growing fascination with the life-giving words that I am enslaved to, and for once, I am the wiser sibling. We're stopped staring at the incongruity, of the austere beauty of a 19th-century church sprouting up from the city block, and she declares that if she could come back as anything, it would be an architect, stamping her soul into edifices, stretching themselves for the sky. It's not the first revelation of the trip. We've been exchanging little slivers of ourselves like kids with marbles or collector's cards. The harrowing root of my claustrophobia, trapped heart-hammering in a locker at age 10, for the desolate stretch of nameless New Mexico highway, where she goes in her mind to listen to the wind, all tucked in carefully among long-lost inside jokes and singing along loudly to Aretha Franklin. It's been a decade since we've had 48 hours to spend on no one but each other, and we've been busy. Finding each other once more. We hit the hotel lobby, hours past the point at which her carriage turns back into a pumpkin. Yet it's her pace that lags as we head for the elevator. Her glance straying over her shoulder to the bar littered with a handful of businessmen, and the other scraps of a late Tuesday night, yes, she, she could buy me a drink. Because neither of us is willing to put to bed the discoveries of the day even though neither of us is willing to say as much. And I know we've at last come home. Thank you very much. Uh, Hey, good timing, cause I'm not talking over that damn train one more time tonight. Thank, Thank Eric too, cause you know, this is his first time up on this stage playing guitar and 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 I'm glad that you guys seem to like it as much as the cats do. Thanks so much for having me back here. God, it was good to come home tonight. Thanks, everybody.
2: you want to torture me, spank me, lick me, do it. But if this poetry shit continues, just shoot me now, please.